As the news broke about the house located at 8213 Somerdale in the late hours of December 21st, I sat in a small apartment with my father and my Uncle Bill, not having a full understanding of what I was watching. Little did I know that this horrible man's life and evil legacy would become a part of my life and my legacy for the next 40 years and beyond. Now, we have focused on the narrative of this case as it unfolded back in 1978 thus far, and that has been primarily done by talking with the officers who conducted the investigation. As you know, during the course of us digging in, we've uncovered massive, long-kept secrets that we still continue to try to make known to the world at large. Because it matters. It's a huge story in one of the 15 biggest criminal cases in American history. We are bound and determined to have the entire truth about the Gacy case come out. And we believe that there is even more to uncover. And the prospect of revealing some of the other secrets seems like it may put Darren and I in personal peril. So this has become much more just an old man talking about an old case. This has become an expose where the stakes are very high and there may be people out there that will try to protect certain secrets at all costs. That has not swayed us to stop doing what we are doing. That being said, if one week, all of a sudden, a new episode doesn't drop, you all will know that something nefarious has occurred. Maybe. I consider this to be the equivalent to dropping a postmarked letter in the mail that's stating that if something happens to us, you know what to do. So as we draw closer to the trial of John Wayne Gacy in the narrative, my father becomes an integral part of the story, which in turn means that I become part of a human drama of the worst kind. This case went well beyond Gacy himself. It affected thousands and thousands of people, all in different ways. So this is how my father recollects the night that the Gacy story broke. I saw Sam on television, and I said, well, I know him. And then they gave a brief summary of uh, what was going on the murders, the client, and either you or my brother suggested uh, that we call him. I said, nah, he's probably got a thousand phone calls. And I think it was you, son, that said, well, send him a telegram. You were Bill. We went into the kitchen because that's where the phone was. Oh, you both were urging me on to, to get in touch. I said, well, that's a decent idea, so might have been right then. I called one in and offered my assistance. I think it was you. That's my best recollection. The case itself was uh, a challenge and uh, extremely uh, exciting. I mean, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you don't want to spend your time trying misdemeanors or low-grade felonies 
Uh, I mean, this literally at that point in time was the case of cases, the case of the century, they called it. So during the course of the trial, uh, aside from the judge not paying us enough money, didn't have any negative effect except it kept me away from my family. Uh, you get so withdrawn into the case that you don't have time for anything else. Episode 15. All hands on deck. So while Gacy is sitting in an interrogation room with his divorce lawyer, one of his criminal defense lawyers, all the members of the Delta team, and a couple of more cops incriminating himself, my father is wearing a track in his carpet by pacing around, figuring out the most effective way to get a hold of Sam Amaranti. He finally lands on the idea of sending him a Western Union telegram which he does that night, which results in a phone call the very next morning. I think it was on a Friday or Saturday because I was in my office in Oak Park uh, and the phone rang and it was Sam. So it must have been mid-afternoon and he said, uh, he didn't give me much time. He said, "Uh, can you help me with something? I said, sure. He said, uh, you know, Dr. Stein, the medical examiner of Cook County at that time, was going to go on the air on Monday, I thought he said, following the weekend. And he he asked me if I could write a uh, motion to prevent the broadcast. I said, you know, there's no prior restraint in uh, (laughs) this country. He said, well, I want to do it anyway. I said, all right. Oh, no, I didn't say all right. I said, well, let me think about it. He says, well, don't think too long. And I hung up, and then I said, you know, uh, what am I doing? So I called him right back, and I said, I, I'll do it. When do you want to meet? And he says, no, I, I don't want to do it. I want you to do it. I said, what, alone? He says, yeah. I said, okay. When's it up? Monday. No, it was a couple of days to do the research on a uh, a motion like that is pretty, you know, difficult. In those days, they didn't have computers to do research and to use actual books. And I did naturally, uh, I think the Trib or CBS or all the stations had this big time uh, lawyer that handled all of their stuff. So he showed up in court on Monday and I argued the motion, I think it was Monday, and uh, as soon as I filed the motion, I think it was the day before or whatever, and the clerks, the word spread immediately. So after I lost the motion, (laughs) which I never gave much uh, hope of winning, I came out and the whole hallway was flooded with reporters and cameras and 
was in the Daly Plaza. That was my first uh, appearance. So the old man's in, but back to the creep. We left off about halfway through Gacy's second statement. You know, the one where his lawyers were present and he's getting into the nitty gritty, saying that he had never hurt anyone while involved in any sex acts. Albrecht is feverishly taking notes, which he reduced to a written statement, which I will now continue to read to you verbatim. When Gacy was around Bughouse Square, the people he came in contact with always thought he was a cop. The radio and red spotlight made them think that. No shit. They would always do what Gacy asked. Gacy told them if they ever needed help, Hey, call Jack Hanley at the Civic Center. Man, this guy was such an arch criminal, an actual uber villain. He played cop to snag these boys. That's super fucking low. Sometimes he would pay the men he picked up, but he would never pay them more than $30. Gacy didn't like the ones that were greedy or would rip you off. These guys would have something done to them. Some of the young men that Gacy picked up and took to his home, he didn't have sex with. He would take them home, undress them, and at times, just eat and talk. Some had hard luck stories, and he would let them go, even giving a few of them money. Gacy didn't like the ones that lied to him and would sell their bodies for $20. Gacy told them, Somebody could kill you for that. They would answer, he could do whatever he wanted. Gacy did not like s and Some of the guys he picked up were really weird. Hmm, there's the pot calling the kettle black. One incident, Gacy brought two guys home at the same time. They both wanted a good time. He showed them some magic and some handcuff tricks when the handcuffs were behind his back. See, here Mike thinks Gacy is telling him that he was literally showing these guys magic tricks he wasn't. Gacy asked one of them if he could get hard with a rope around his neck. Gacy told him, You twist the rope two, three times, and then I'll blow you. Gacy twisted the rope around the victim's neck until he died. Gacy went to another room where the second subject that he had brought home with him was and told him, Your friend's dead. The second subject wouldn't believe him. Gacy then said that he had both subjects, previous to any involvement with him, handcuffed. Gacy took the second person into the room where the body of the first was. Gacy then indicated that he strangled the second victim right in front of his friend. Gacy said that Rossi dug some of the graves in the basement. Rossi would dig trenches two feet by four feet deep. Gacy indicated he would bury some of his victims on top of one another. Gacy also indicated that there was no more room in the basement for any more bodies. Gacy then began talking about another victim. This guy was really jet. He owned a car and was a real smart ass. The victim had his car title with him, and Gacy asked if he would sign the title over to him. Gacy never indicated whether the victim signed the title, but did say that he gave the car to Michael Rossi. 
He's talking about Johnny Zick here. He met this victim in Arlington Heights, apparently at the racetrack. The victim danced with the G-string. Every time he did something, he wanted 20 bucks for this, and he wanted 20 for that. The victim asked Gacy what he did. Gacy showed him some magic with the cards, and then the rope trick. He put the rope around his neck and then inserted the stick. Gacy twisted it two or three times, and then he went into convulsions. That was the end of him. Now, he's under the house. Two and a half to three years ago, Gacy had a drag queen. The victim danced like a broad. He was real weird. God didn't put people on earth to do that. Gacy twisted the rope twice, then read the victim the 23rd Psalm. And then he turned the rope one more time, and the victim died. Gacy then mentioned the 15th, 16th, and 17th victims. He didn't even know who they were. Five victims were put in the river off the I-55 bridge to be washed away by the barges. Gacy said he had doubles two or three times. He explained the phrase doubles to mean that two victims were killed in the same evening at about the same time. One was a speed freak. Gacy didn't know the victim's name. Gacy said he didn't know the names of all of his victims, but he could pick pictures out of a book. Gacy said he put the lime or acid on them under a foot of dirt. John's buried in the garage. He's talking about Johnny Bugovich. One victim's from Round Lake. He said he met someone from Des Plaines. He met another victim on Montrose between Lincoln and Devon. One of the victims was from Michigan. The victim had appeared in The Gay Magazine. In Clearwater, Florida, Gacy liked to get it on there. He got the clothes of some seamen. Gacy was then shown a driver's license of Robert Hassan. Gacy said he didn't know him but that the license was in someone else's wallet that had been killed. Gacy then mentioned the card he had in his possession from Mann County, a lounge on Broadway that had a number on it. Gacy said he had that just to show some of his victims. Gacy said he did not like to go into gay bars. In 1975, Gacy was propositioned by a subject for $10. That was insulting to Gacy and he threw the man out of the car. Lucky guy. Gacy said that he was always the domineering one. He would make any and all propositions. Gacy then spoke of Jeff Rignall. He indicated he can't recall the incident very clearly. He picked up Rignall around Clark and Diversi. Gacy said Rignall is familiar, but can't recall him too well. Rignall claims that he was attacked and raped by Gacy. Gacy was arrested in July. Then in August and September, Rignall was sick with hepatitis and didn't appear in court. That case was ultimately dismissed. Gacy said that he had affairs with 150 people and they all got paid. 
All individuals knew what was going on. Casey never bothered straight people. Rossi didn't get into it with the victims. He liked to have sex. I would blow him and watch girly flicks with him to get him excited. Rossi would initiate the action whenever he wanted it. As a favor. Casey had a fight with Rossi in August. Rossi wanted Gacy to hire a friend. Casey wouldn't hire him. Rossi pressed the issue and asked why he wouldn't give his friend a job. Gacy told Rossi his friend had nothing upstairs and he wouldn't hire an incompetent. At that time, they were in Rossi's mother's tavern in Cicero. Rossi and the friend started calling Gacy a jagoff and they wanted to fight. Gacy said he wouldn't fight and started to leave. Outside the establishment, the two approached Gacy, called him a jagoff again, and then started hitting Gacy. Gacy told them to leave me alone. They then got Gacy down and started kicking him in the chest. Gacy thought he went into cardiac arrest and was hospitalized. So let's take a pause there. Holy shit, man. Cops go their entire careers dreaming about getting a statement like this. And 99% of them never get it. That statement is unbelievable. They didn't even have to ask the creep any questions. He just started with the word vomit and didn't stop until he had dug his own grave for a change. There is so, so much contained in there. It is chock filled with murder. He just admitted to killing Tim McCoy, Johnny Bukovich, and Johnny Zick. He threw Rossi under the bus saying that he was a grave digger. He admits to killing two young men at the same time. A couple of three times. He admits to the assault of poor Jeff Rignall, who Chicago PD, of course, shit all over. Why? Because he was gay. This guy had to actually conduct his own investigation into Gacy because the cops wouldn't. He would sit on an overpass waiting for the creep's pseudo-cop car to ooze by so they could get his plates. And he finally struck gold, then bypassed the cops and went directly to the state's attorney's office to press charges. Just so much. This is not fiction, even though it actually seems like it is. Then he mentions Clearwater, Florida. This gives me great pause. He says he'd like to get it on there. He says he got the clothes of some seaman. Look, part of what is going on in season two of the Gacy tapes is diving into shit exactly like this. If the Displains police called down to Clearwater PD to see about any missing boys in the years between 72 and 78, okay, but I sure haven't seen any reports about that happening. Did they call the naval base down there to see if any seamen had gone AWOL in that time frame? Hey, look, we can't pay you, but Darren and I wouldn't be angry if any of you super sleuths out there wanted to do a little digging. Provided, of course, that you report back to us. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not kidding. We were very accessible to our listeners, and as a general proposition, we would be remiss if we didn't give a little bit of a shout-out to one of our most active listeners. 
Brian Rausch. Yeah, I'm talking about you, man. Brian has recently given us some information that we strongly believe may lead to an identification of one of the six unidentified victims. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we will be making the drive to Iowa in very short order. Start putting the wheels in motion. These are the types of relationships we want to build with you all. We are trying to make an impact. We need you to help us do that. So let's finish up the second statement. I mean, what else could he possibly say? Gacy then spoke of his daily schedule in general time periods. He said he would work late, many times working from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. After work, late night, midnight or later, he would go whoring. He would have sex between 1 and 3 a.m. And the victims died between 3 and 6 a.m., except for the last two. Joe was killed around 1 a.m., and the young boy from Des Plaines died at 9.30 p.m. When Joe Kozenzak and his partner came to the house, Gacy indicated that Robbie was in the attic. Gacy was asked if Robbie was dead at the time. Gacy answered, He might have been. Gacy further said that after the victims were strangled, sometimes they would convulse for an hour or two. Gacy said he would only have oral sex with victims unless they would consent to do other acts. Gacy said he had anal sex with Rossi, but Rossi lost interest after he started seeing Kathy. While they were having sex, Rossi enjoyed it. Gacy did not use force. David Cram would have sex with him when he wanted something. Gacy said that was a weak point, but didn't clarify on whose weak point he was speaking of. Ed Hefner doesn't know anything. Mike knew nothing. Gacy then said he threw the personal effects and the clothes of the victims into the garbage. Gacy then became very adamant and said that he is not a homosexual. People are wrong if they say he is a homosexual. Gacy said he has a strong fear of being homosexual. Gacy then talked about the books that were taken from his house. He said he would use the books as shock treatment for some of his victims. The books were not his. Gacy said he would not spend his money on those types of books. 2159 Racine was the location that he did some work. I think we should check out that address. While he was working there, he found a lot of books and snapshots. Bughouse Square didn't have to look for the homosexuals. Gacy was then asked if he stalked his victims, and Gacy nodded affirmatively. He would have a cigarette with the victims and then ask him if they wanted to go have a party. Then discussions would go to the price, five, 10, or 20, sometimes 50. Those were the most common prices. Gacy then indicated there were no bodies buried in any cemeteries. Outside of the house, the only place he put the victims was over the bridge. In fact, he thought one of the bodies ended up landing on a passing barge. He said that he can't recall much before 1974. All the bodies in Somerdale, we wouldn't be able to just find them. He'd have to show us where they were. During the interview, Gacy was only asked two or three questions mentioned in this report. 
the rest of the entire statement was made on the spontaneity of Gacy. Gacy choosing and describing all subject matter. At one point during the interview, shortly after Gacy mentioned Jack Hanley and continuing on with the statement, Mr. Stevens attempted to ask him a question, addressing him first as Jack. And then when he did not get a response, he said John, to which he got an immediate response from Gacy. At the conclusion of the interview, Gacy was taken to another interview room to speak with his sister. At that time, he immediately started talking about an incident that happened in 1971 or 1972. He mentioned the name of Jack Hanley again as being a police officer on the homicide unit in Chicago. End of report. So there it is, in its entirety. The creep's entire statement. I can't imagine what he has left to say in the next few statements. The things that stick out to me from the second portion that I just read are that of all the things that he felt the need to try and give some kind of explanation for were not the abductions and murders of all the young men, but the gay porn books they found in his attic during the first search of his house and being profoundly adamant about the fact that he wasn't gay. Yes, you were. It's so clear that Gacy detested the fact that he was gay to such an extent that it resulted in the death of at least 33 innocent young men. It makes me wonder that if Gacy had been born, say, 30 years later, if he still would have been the murderous son of a bitch that he was. If he had been born at a time when society finally came to realize that people should be able to love who they want to love without being seen as a deviant or made to feel terrible about who they are by society? Would he have possessed that psychotic rage that drove him to kill, which in his warped mind absolved him from what his natural urges desired? I don't know, but we will be delving into that concept in later episodes with people that are far more qualified than I am to discuss it. So as the sun rises, Gacy is cuffed and transported 53 miles south to the bridge that crosses the Desplaines River by a flock of cops with the promise that he's going to show his captors exactly where it is that he disposed of Rob Peace's body, which he does. They then drive him back to his home for the last time so that he can show the men charged with the gruesome task of excavating the creep's graveyard of young souls where they could find the bodies. Gacy leads them to the shed connected to the garage, where Gacy proceeds to make a large red X with spray paint on the cement floor. I'd start here if I were you. Dan Genty of the Cook County Sheriff's Police takes the creep's advice and does exactly that. At the same time, unbeknownst to me, other people are working out and back in the shed because they had brought him to Gacy there during the night, the investigators, and he had gone in the, he told them where other bodies were, at least two other bodies, and one was in the shed in the back uh, that was attached to the new garage that he had built there, 
and it was under cement. You'd never think there was a body there. He took a spray can and made an X there. And, uh, and then he told them that there was one by the barbecue pit out in the, in the back, and a big brick barbecue pit, or, you know, raised up thing. Anyway, um, so somebody had gone back there, and they had pulled the cabinets out that were over it, uh, and uh, cut a hole in the wall so they could work at it easier, and taken a jackhammer and broken up this concrete. So after we took this first body out, body number one, we went back there because they had found a body underneath the cement. So that was body number two. And uh, again, all this adipus here, and there's water. We're at ground level, and this guy is in water underneath the cement. And uh, we started pulling those bones out, and Stein came back and looked, and he goes, you stop right now. There's so much gas coming up here because the cement had held everything in. You're going to get sick. So let's just stop right now. And so it wound up taking us three times to recover that body. I think we went back the next day and got some more pieces. Or I don't remember exactly when it was. But uh, So that was it the first day, two bodies. Back to my work, when, when this concrete was poured in 1973, Carol and Mrs. Grixon next door helped me lay the concrete. I was supposed to have help, and I had no help. We, we laid, I think it was nine yards of concrete just by ourselves. Did Cram and Rossi ever help you in the backyard with anything? Uh, yeah, they, mixed, uh, they, mixed, they helped me pour the concrete that went over the slab here. They, this concrete Over the here. slab where? In the old garage? Yeah, they helped pour this concrete, this one here, and this here. This was all poured at the same time. We just raked it out and flattened it out because we knew I was going to blacktop it. See, I had to bring this up to the new slab here. This was poured by Brody. This one I did. The new garage poured by Brody? Yeah. Old poured by Rossi and you? No, no, no. no. We covered over the old. The old was existing from the time. Okay. So you never broke it up, you just poured over it. Right. This, the shed, what about that? Did you do that yourself? Yeah, I did that in 19... I think it was 73. What about this? When did you pour over that? The old garage slab. We poured over it in <coughs> 1977. When was the new garage poured? 77. Mark that down there. What is this all around here? All blacktop? All, this is all concrete. Here's where the gun was found. Okay. And that you think was your mother-in-law's? Yeah, it had to be. I'm the, one that, I'm the one that poured this piece of concrete. When was this? All of this was poured in 73 then? This was all poured when Carol and I were married, yes. Mm -hmm. Where would the pool, where did the pool used to be? Uh, when the garage was there, originally the pool, encompassed this part of the yard. Okay. When was it torn down? 
because there was a tree right here. When was the pool torn down? Uh, 1972. Right after we got married. The reason we tore it down is because April and Tammy, at that time, Tammy was uh, three or four years old. See? And this took up almost the whole yard. You couldn't let them outside because if they, if they were able to climb into here, they could get to the fence. When was the barbecue pit for it? 73. While the press and the crowd teeming with morbid curiosity begins to form outside of Gacy's home, back at the station, the primary goal is singular now that Gacy is off the streets. And that is to find Rob Peace. If you were under the assumption that police investigations end immediately upon the arrest of the perpetrator, you would be incorrect. And as a matter of fact, oftentimes, the most important and crucial aspects of police work take place after the perp is in custody. Now, if you are a bit curious what happens to a defendant after they've been arrested, well, my friends, you are in luck because it's your favorite time and it's my favorite time. It's Criminal Procedure 101 time. So the first thing that happens after a defendant has been arrested is that they are brought in front of a judge for a bond or bail hearing. This is where the judge determines whether or not they're going to set a bond amount, which in theory, if the defendant can raise the funds, they can then post the bond and be released from jail while trial is pending. During the bond hearing, the state informs the judge of what the defendant has been charged with and also informs the judge of what the criminal history of the defendant is. The defense attorney then argues that the defendant is not a threat to public safety and further that they are not a flight risk, which are the two factors that the court concerns itself with in determining whether to set bond, and if so, at what amount. Obviously, the more serious the offense, the higher the bond amount will be. Keep in mind that the Constitution, specifically the Eighth Amendment, lays out the law with respect to the setting of bond. Pre-trial detainment is not meant to punish, but rather to ensure the defendant's appearance at trial and to keep the public safe. Often with the most serious charges, such as murder, bond will be denied based on the public safety prong, but it is a case-by-case -case determination. So after the bond hearing in a felony case, the defendant must either be formally charged by way of a preliminary hearing or a grand jury indictment. Remember, to keep a person in custody after arrest, the rather low burden of establishing probable cause is all that needs to be met. This burden is tested during a preliminary hearing or a grand jury hearing, wherein the state must show that they have enough evidence to have the charges stick, which allows the state to move to the next stage of the process, which is the indictment. The difference between the preliminary hearing and the grand jury is pretty significant. At a preliminary hearing, the defendant is present and the state must produce a witness, typically a cop, to testify. That cop can be cross-examined by the defense. If after the testimony, the judge finds that there is sufficient evidence to establish probable cause 
that the defendant has committed the offense, they are formally charged by way of an information. The grand jury hearing is a very one-sided affair where the defendant is not present and the state puts on a witness, again, usually a cop, to testify in front of a panel of citizens who determine if there is enough evidence to proceed. If the grand jury finds that there is probable cause that the defendant committed the offense, they are formally charged by way of an indictment. Clearly, defense attorneys prefer the preliminary hearing, while the state prefers the grand jury. So now the defendant has been formally charged. Now they must be arraigned. The arraignment is where the judge formally informs the defendant exactly what they have been charged with and what the potential penalties for those charges are. It is during the arraignment where the defendant enters a plea of either guilty or not guilty. After that is the discovery and motion phase, and then trial. Now this process can take years. And all during the process, up until the day of trial, the police can and will continue to attempt to collect evidence. And they do this because what they've gathered initially may be enough to arrest and charge the defendant, but it isn't enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant has committed the crime. So there you go, lesson over. After the field trip to the river and his home, Gacy is brought before Judge Peters for a bond hearing, which of course was denied, meaning that there was no amount of money that would allow Gacy to walk the streets again pending trial. The legal process for the prosecution of John Wayne Gacy has officially begun, and the creep will never breathe one breath of freedom ever again. Now, we had earlier alerted you to the fact that we would be establishing a toll-free tip line in the hopes that we can collectively work to identify the six remaining victims who deserve to be known. So if you have information or know someone that has information that could possibly be helpful to the cause, please do not hesitate in contacting us. Everything that is passed on to us will be directly forwarded to law enforcement. If you want to remain anonymous, do that. If you want to leave your information, do that. But if you have any information that could be helpful, please do it and make the call. The number is 844-78-VIC-23. That's 844-78-VIC-23. We truly hope to hear from you. And this episode is dedicated to my uncle, William J. Mata, who passed away a couple of weeks ago. Uncle Bill, I love you. You'll be missed. Finally, thank yous to my partner in crime, the Wizard of Sound, Darren Wood, to Taras Horoluski for creating the amazingly eerie and haunting music you hear every episode, and Ryan Gack for mixing and mastering it. To our graphic design man, Alex Carver, thank you. And to Allison Mata, keep crushing it. 
And finally, to you, our Patreon Defense Team members and our loyal listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and sharing the love. Because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk at you next time. Thank you, Bob. Hey, Bob, thank you, too. Thanks, man. Thank you, Bob. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know, we know exactly where the body's at.